And I've been finding that with COVID, not having access to the regular interactions I used to have was really draining. So I've been finding actually just having conversations with people like yourself and, and you know, a handful of other, I'd say, inspiring peers has given me a lot of energy. It's like a solid granola bar of hope where I can just eat that and just go with it for a while before I need another dose. Welcome to Design Lab, a show where we explore how design can help us to live healthier lives. I'm a practicing physician and I am obsessed with discovering how we can redesign our lives and our environments in order to make better choices about healthy living. I can't believe we're already on episode five. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed and rated. This really helps others find this podcast. I love this comment last week that was posted. I'm just going to read it to you. I love the careful attention to highlighting a key take home each week around the issue of leveraging design in all its forms to make our lives a bit happier and healthier. These comments are so inspiring. Keep them coming. In this episode, we have a great takeaway from George A., who co-founded the Chicago-based Greater Good Studio. George and I talk about doing these personal gut checks. It's this idea that you can reflect upon your past life, your lived experience, and use that as a valuable asset to make future decisions. So taking an inventory of your life can give you this data to help you make better informed decisions. I'm a huge fan of George's. He frequently speaks about how design can advance equity for all. In addition to running his design studio, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He previously was at the global innovation firm IDEO, and he was the first ever human-centered designer to be hired at the Chicago Transit Authority. Here's my conversation with George A. George, thanks for joining me on Design Lab. It's been a while since we've caught up. Good to see you, Bon. Thanks so much for inviting me to this. This is really fab. I'm a huge fan of Greater Good Studio. Can you tell me some of the projects that you've been working on during this time? Yeah, um, well, we were struggling a little through COVID. I think there was uh, COVID definitely kind of put the brakes on quite a few different projects. But we managed to do actually start and complete a whole project right in the middle of all of this, which was for the Rob Robert Johnson Foundation around scholars of color and helping them understand sort of maybe what the process is like to go through as someone who's going to academia. Scholars of color, I think, are pretty rare still, hmm. but also understanding that the programs and support systems that they could provide as a foundation is one aspect. And I think they probably intuitively knew this, but one of the big insights was around making sure that there's also supports for the institutions themselves to be more ready, I'd say for the needs of those individuals. So we were very fortunate to be able to do a project like that. Uh, I think that sort of, it's very apropos to the kinds of kinds of projects that we like working on is being asked to work on projects that are maybe slightly under the radar mm-hmm. and also of needs that are often based in systemic racism. So when those things kind of come together and there's an opportunity for design, we get really excited. And we always often kind of can't believe half the time that we get to do these projects, but also so relieved that somebody is thinking about them. And so in this case, RWJ, I think, really stepped up in, in that regard. I, I love that Projects Greater Good Studio is doing because you're unlike a lot of design studios that you take on projects that have social impact. And then you also have some principles that determine what type of projects you all decide to take on. How, how did that end up happening? 
That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think they've been a little organic, but I think um, early on it was between myself, my co-founder, maybe one other team member because we were still pretty small then. It was a very intuitive conversation around should we do this or should we not do this? Mm-hmm. And I think we kept getting stress tested in smaller ways. Um, and we realized, I think if you leave it up to your gut only, uh, which I think is kind of how a lot of decision gets decision making, particularly in design gets done, there's enough vulnerability that you expose yourself to that you can be manipulated both by clients or by your quarterly result, like your bank account can manipulate you or your own ego can manipulate you. There's so many ways in which you leave yourself exposed that we thought, wait, this is like a really unsophisticated way to run a business. We should write this down. Like, let's just write down what is coming up for us, be almost merely as feelings. And what we realize is that if those feelings are predictable, we should probably work out what the question should be (laughs) that would elicit those feelings, mm. good or bad. And what we realized is that that actually is a thing. That could be a thing, which we now call a gut check. And we do roughly one every week where we, we know we're lucky in that we get a lot of inquiries for, for new business. And almost every week we do something at our office called a BD charrette, which is a business development session mm-hmm. to almost like do the intake as a whole team and interpret what should our response be to this. Mm. I, I love that. I in preparing for me speaking to you, even though I know you well, I listened to a lot of podcasts that you were on and oh. saw a lot of talks by you. And I oh, love this that's idea. Very of this, kind of you. Yeah, I love this idea of this gut check that you do, this principle. And I thought I could maybe do this in my own life, this sort of internal gut check that you use it as a studio to determine what type of clients that you're going to take on. And you're not going to take on a client that is out there trying to sell soda to uh, inner city neighborhoods, right? So I was kind of curious that are there ways to apply this gut check into the lives of like everyday people like me? Oh, goodness, of course, yeah. I mean, I think it's not even that sophisticated or fancy. I would definitely say that I've run gut check workshops and people can apply any number of different uh, sort of inputs or bits of data. But the idea that you can reflect upon your past life, your lived experience, as a valuable asset to then make future decisions is the whole crux of it. That's mm. all. And if the decisions that you're talking about are mostly whether or not I signed up to like help my neighbor with a project or like the, the time when I applied to grad school or when I've helped somebody with their wedding, like those are decisions that you still have feelings about, I'm sure. Mm. Very personal, not to do with a professional setting. And you may find actually that in those moments, you might have felt some sort of like obligation or a sense of like duty. And actually when you did it, you realize, and now I feel kind of resentful. It was never really got recognized. Mm-hmm. That those are parts of a pattern that could exist. Not to say that they should be there, but if they were there, we spend so little time reflecting. I think we end up being very vulnerable for when the next time a, in this case, an obligation comes up and you go, oh, I don't really want to do this. That's me all the time. I'm always like, oh, I'm too busy. I can't do this. Or, you know, I'm so busy that I feel like I have no time to reflect and think about these personal choices in life. So I'm thinking like, how can I implement this gut check on a weekly basis for me would be, I think, just great to determine, am I investing my time in a way that betters the people around me? 
Yeah, I mean, that's not to make it weird, but like, I would love to do a gut check with you. Do you want to, we could just yeah. set up a 90 minute gut check. I mean, it wouldn't take long at all. Yeah. It takes post-it notes and then you just to kind of like recount and do an inventory. But doing so and then setting the time to, to get that set up is maybe harder than doing the work. Mm-hmm. But once you set up the, the reflection part, what I find really fun about doing these exercises is that you can actually turn it into a tool, which is, you know, kind of what designers do. We like make tools. Yeah. So the tool part of this is not just simply to do a retroactive review, which is already helpful, mm-hmm. but to also turn it into preemptive questions. Mm. So let's say if the constant pattern is, man, I feel obligated to do things. And when I feel obligated, I do them, but then I resent people afterwards. Let's just say that's a pattern, okay? Yeah, that's that's totally true to me. Just just say I and feel it, you're my therapist, man. If I, that were, I, I, do, I do have a therapist, and so, well, so that's one of these gut checks. <laughs> that's kind of my version of gut check, but it's very heavy. But like you're like this is a little bit lighter. So so if that pattern were to exist, then you could at least say, huh? The next incoming inquiry from my mum, from my neighbour, my old co- you know college roommate, whatever it is. What question should I ask knowing that's a predictable feeling I'm going to have? So if the, if the question should be, how will I feel if I didn't get recognition? Will this add to my relationship with this person or is it going to detract from this relationship? Is this a debt I feel like I have to pay down now or pay down later? Like, I don't know what the questions ought to be. I, mm. That's how we would develop them. But you can actually ask preemptively of any incoming stuff because you have the data already in your life. That to me is the fun part. And once you turn it into that tool with this preemptive questions, you can kind of go into these incoming life experiences, not with control, because I, I don't think anybody has control, but just with your eyes open. That's that's fascinating. I love this idea of data informing my everyday decisions in life and these personal decisions. but. Often, I think I'm making these personal decisions with my friends or family without data informing me and without analysis. And not to overanalyze my life, but I think sometimes I think a weekly or biweekly kind of like gut check would be super helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. It, it. it sounds kind of pedantic, really, if you really you know get into it. But it can help maybe stabilize some of the rapid up and down that can happen in one's life and you know in, in many ways I think for the studio we were finding that when we didn't have these types of operational interventions we had a real roller coaster of a time mm. and while some people could say a roller coaster sounds fun that sounds horrible to me and also I think our team were experiencing a real emotional highs and lows that I think gets called exciting or gets code for it's a startup or, or whatever sort of like uh, language you want to say, but mm-hmm. actually it's just operational cultural laziness. Uh, I, I think it's sort of like neglectful to have mm-hmm. that level of up and down. I actually would like things to be a little more steady so that folks can have more stability in their life so that they can build other platforms on top of it. Mm-hmm. When everything's so up and down all the time, I feel like I'm just leaving my team in a real state of discompopulation that's just irresponsible. When the pandemic is over, I'm going to totally visit your studio in Chicago. <laughs> I've been wanting to do that because I first heard about you and your studio through a Medium post that you wrote. Oh. It's called Why Designers Write on Walls and Why You Should Too. And you talked about your physical space in Chicago and how that physical space keeps your team inspired and productive. And I actually use some of those methods that you use to design your own space 
to design the space in my lab. So I was wondering, can you talk about your studio in Chicago? I, I can, but it's now RIP. It's so sad. We actually terminated the lease and put everything oh, away. Oh, no. So because of COVID, oh. I, I, I can't tell you if there's any part of my life that hasn't been affected by it. Mm. So I and the team built that place from scratch and it felt like I was putting down a puppy. Mm. It felt like we had to put down an animal that we had raised from birth. And I feel oh. like I'm still kind of mourning it actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. Because it's because we, I cared so much about that place. But the reality was I didn't feel safe opening it up, even if other people, you know, if the governor said, you know, it's safe. Mm-hmm. I felt like this is not, it's just not safe. And I, I think it's sort of uh, reckless. So we made an incredibly hard decision because I, you know, how much care that we put into and how much thought we put into designing each other's very specific needs. And, you know, maybe at a principal level, the, the way in which we were so careful was we were trying to match the space to the behaviors that were already happening, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And I think that's often somehow backwards. I've seen in a lot of design work, particularly around space, is that people have to conform their behaviors to what the space provides mm-hmm. versus you should design your space to what the behaviors ought to be in that room. So if you had visited while it was still up and running, and at some point it will come back Phoenix-like when when everything's safe again, and we're going to design the shit out of it when we get a chance to do it then. But there were like little zones. There were zones for being ultra quiet. There were zones for being a little more open, you know, open uh, and available. But the one that you're talking about with this, the vertical bays, we actually had like hand designed and built these project bays with a lot of great care around supporting the idea of Putting up your data, in this case, it was all physical paper, putting the data up such that you could see a pattern at a distance because it was a large enough room where you could literally step back and look at it. And you did this with four by eight cardboard sheets. Yeah, big cardboard sheets that we bought from Uline that was pretty cheap. I I Um, bought like 40 of those for my lab (laughs) when I I read your Medium post. How funny. And I carried all those damn pieces down the stairs by myself because no one could help me. The delivery just turned up on one day, but they've been fantastic. We've used them for our classes and our design workshops at the medical school. And I love, they're just, you could put so much crap on there and you could just show your work all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's why that blog post became so important to us because we realized there's actually a methodology here and there's, there's real benefit. And we found, actually, I should add you to the list, but we found maybe four to five different places around the country now have taken that blog post and then built their own little project base from it. I think there was a hope that maybe one of our clients would do it one day to fuse into this space, this, this idea of sharing earlier, sharing often, opening yourself up to critique. Uh, and just like show your work, but mm-hmm. in a tangible sense, which is kind of what the, the, the blog post was about. And I don't know if we ever had a, a client do it, but I love hearing that other people would be inspired to like go buy those boards. That's an awesome. Yeah, I, bu- I bought it from Uline. I clicked on the link. And what what I love that it, it could be done so cheaply that you didn't need when we think of these creative studios or design studios that it needs gl- a lot of glass and shiny surfaces. But this was like literally putting up cardboard and creating these pods and putting your work on the cardboard. And that was just, it was, it was great because we didn't have a big budget. And this was the easiest way to build a space that promoted that creative thinking among teams for us. So thank you, man. 
for the folks listening, you can't see George and me, but we kind of look alike. We have both have <laughs> olive skin, and I know George sounds so much smarter than me. One, he is, <laughs> and he's got that damn cool, sophisticated accent, which mm. is British accent. And you were born in Burma, moved to England at a very early age, and moved to the U.S. So you're got this Burmese identity, this British identity, and American Id- identity. What do you identify yourself as? Dude. Because I, I think about this a lot myself. Being yeah. my, my parents are from South Korea. I was mm. born in this country. I kind of feel not part of both of those countries, you know? And I have yeah. this sense of me, you know, wanting to always be white growing up because people who were white in America had power. They were the ones who were accepted. And so, and even with my kids, I, I see that they feel left out and they want to be like the other white kids in, at their school. And it's tough. I'm still having these questions of identity <laughs> in my middle age life. And so you're catching me at a time when I went from being in shell shock, I'd say about three or four years ago when I finally realized that perhaps there was something up because I don't think I recognized that there was so much of myself I had lost. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's at all surprising that you're having these questions because I'm having them for sure. But I'm now at a point now, a few years in, and I'm now kind of just getting angry mm-hmm. about having felt like I am, have been cheated. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. I feel like I had lost so many years operating under one type of uh, set of rules and then realizing it was all a farce mm-hmm. and I wasted time being something else that I could never achieve because I've been socialized to think that was the norm or the best or some sort of other sort of like peak as opposed to just being myself. I've been feeling a little bit of the same way over over the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the time we're talking about right there is a lot of conversations from a lot of people about their own relationship to white supremacy culture. And I, I happen to have had a relationship with myself about this for the last few years. So I feel more, if anything, more emboldened to talk about it out loud because mm-hmm. of how much the conversation of the country is happening out loud, which is so inspiring. But I'm at a point where I'm feeling a little bothered by it more. And I would, I think there's a phrase I've been using just kind of almost like practicing this, which is to say I'm a recovering white person. Mm-hmm. Growing up in England is a very particular kind of whiteness. Um, like OG whiteness, as it were. Hmm. And then to grow up as a Burmese person in that culture, my way of coping with it was to assimilate in a Hmm. really strongly identified way. So there's a certain amount of self-deception that had to have gone on in me to make me feel like I wasn't Burmese anymore. And that actually was just, I just was just amongst everybody else. I was just one of the guys. Yeah. And and I realized- Same here. I was ashamed to be Korean growing up. Well- And I just- Everything, even from the smell of the kimchi at my in my apartment growing up, that I was ashamed of that smell when my friends would come over and I would try to hide that part of my identity. Yeah. So there are Burmese, there are lots of Burmese culture and Burmese cuisine that that is equally <laughs> pungent. And there are parts of it. It's like, oh my god, do you really have to do that right now? I have my, I have like my mate, you know, uh, Chris over right now. Like this is not a good time to be ultra Burmese. Thank you. And a lot of it would just cause me in terms of. It just keep in knots as a kid growing up. But I feel, looking back on it, how much of that time was spent as misdirected energy. Mm. And I wonder who I could have been if my energy hadn't been spent doing that. 
So I feel like I'm trying to catch up, but I also see in a lot of other adults this reconciliation happening or the mm. struggle around reconciliation. And I'm feeling less and less interested in pretending now one version and trying to be truer to whatever is left now of me. I mean, there's so much confusion. I, I, so my wife is Korean. I've got two kids. My son is 11. And last year, I he remember him saying, say, hey, dad, can Asian people run for president? And thinking, what is going on? He's a oh. smart kid, but I, it's this him just seeing whiteness as the power, even what at that question. early age. What and a it question. Kind of shocked me that he said that. Because and if you look at the evidence, how would he know? Yeah. Technically, the answer is no. You know, if you look at what has been done, if you look at simply through the modeling of behavior, the answer is no. Technically, yes, it's true. You can. But if there's never been evidence of it, his question is completely legitimate. And he was, his answer into himself would be, well, I don't think so. So <laughs> he brings you a really interesting opportunity to confront why isn't it? Why would you not know that already? There's not that many, I guess, that I know of Asian male like designers who run their own companies. And hmm. were your parents happy with that? You becoming a designer? Because my parents would have freak the hell out if I told them I was going to be a designer. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very commonly shared sense from maybe Asian people, but certainly immigrants, I think. And Asian immigrants is particularly mm -hmm. toxic for designers, I think. My parents were not interested in, in that idea. They just thought the whole thing seemed completely ridiculous. Because I think I had originally wanted to be a typographer, like the most esoteric version of a design. I yeah. like, wanted to design type just sounds so ludicrous. I actually applied to go to type school at university in, there was only one course in the whole country. It was to design type at Reading University in England. And it was, the requirements to get in were ultra high end. Like you needed to have two A's and a B. I think it was the scoring, the, the, like the numbers you get if you do something called the GCSEs way back uh, in like the 90s, uh -huh. were incredibly high, high requirements. And it also was like esoteric. And neither of those things worked out for me. So... Presenting the idea of being, being a designer was like a real dead end. Whereas engineering is a little more credible to my mom and dad. Mm -hmm. Top tier would have been a doctor. They'll take an engineer. And, you know, in Burmese hierarchy, like there's a monk, doctor, engineer, and then everything else. <laughs> That's, and then everything else is sort of just like a distant second. And I found out actually, because I started teaching, that being a professor was up there. So that was a late, that was a late discovery. <laughs> They're like, oh no, we'll take that, we'll take that. <laughs> but no, being, being a designer in terms of like other examples I'd seen, there's so few. I mean, I think John Mader might be the only other person I can yeah, even recall. I, I don't think I've ever met him, but I don't know of many others in that space. There are so, other, so few non-white designers, period. And to find like, rarer still will be black female designers. I mean, those are the rarest of all probably. You didn't study design at university, right? You were a mechanical engineer? I studied engineering and actually the okay. course I was taking was very fortunate. It was a design visualization degree. So a little bit of, a uh, little bit of design, but you know, mostly around computer generated uh, imagery for engineers. Mm -hmm. The real story is that there was no other course in the country that would take me. My scores coming out of the GCSEs, like the SATs as it were, okay. were so bad that I missed all the targets. 
So I was below any level to get into a university, into a four-year university. So my wait, parents, you were Asian male and you were bad at math, bad at everything. In this case, <laughs> I was really misaligned because all the courses I took were for med school. There were medical, like biology. There were biology, physics, and math. I think that's what I had originally taken, because I was like hell bent on not disappointing my parents. So these are the courses you take, even though they were patently obvious to everyone that I'm not gonna, not none of this is gonna work out. I just got horrible scores on all of them. I got like two E's and a C. Uh, so it was. So they were basically below. Wait, is, is it because in England you have to decide as a high school student if you want to go become a doctor, or you, you, it's, you start, it's earlier on, right? It's earlier. The there were pathways you're picking earlier that are I wouldn't say vocational, but just like pathways. Mm -hmm. uh, and like picking your A levels are very determinate towards kind of the careers you want. So I was heading towards something that I felt obligated to do because nobody checked to see what I wanted to do. And I don't think I could have told you either, but Asian culture doesn't, doesn't do a lot of checking on young people. <laughs> I they know. Just, you just get told what is best. My parents had no idea what was going on there. They said, as long as you're going to medical school, go, going on, uh, that, that's fine. Like I, I did a lot of sports in high school. I was on the fencing team in college. I think they barely knew I was like doing that. I was doing sports because it was like, as long as you're getting good grades, you're gonna go to med school. Everything's fine. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the, the sentiment behind it. Burmese culture, at least, the sort of the reverence that people have for being a doctor is different than you have, I think, if you're in the United States. I think there's such a strong social component of being a doctor that it's uh, not associated with like wealth and, and career the way that I, I know of it in some countries. But in Burma, at least, there's a really strong attachment to uh, service side of being a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I think that was very much a, a part of what they wanted for me, but nobody checked technically. So while being a dutiful son, I d did those courses and just failed. <laughs> I got two E's and a C. So I got eight points. I think that's the number. And my minimum was to get at least 10 to get into a college. So the, the, like the school I went to was not a particularly like rigorous school. <laughs> and their score I missed. I like missed the target for that. So my dad had to like send a letter begging, please can you let my son in? He's a loser, but at least he will make it. So I snuck into this this engineering school, which saved me because I think otherwise I might have ended up just working at a Best Buy, you know? So but what's and engineering is so so rigorous. I mean you must have done so well, I, right? that's right. I know I really struggled through the engineering school as well. So but here's the part that I think really saved me. Have you ever heard these stories about how, I think I read this in some Malcolm Gladwell book, but like Bill Gates, right? I'm not saying mm -hmm. I'm Bill Gates, but here's, here you go. Bill Gates, from a very early age, he went to a very special private school and he had access to like an IBM mainframe when he was a teenager, when you could have counted the number of people in the world who had access to something like that, right? I'm going into this, like sneaking into this university at, my, at like just crossing the line and the school happened to have silicon graphics hardware. They had all of this incredibly expensive, really esoterically designed boxes that were only designed to do one thing, which was to physically, sorry, to design and model three-dimensional software. Wow. So they had access to Alias, which is a piece of software that only was available for high-end car design studios and rendering software that was only available to Pixar at the time. So this is 1994. Wow. So they had access to all this 
all these desktop computers and something called an Onyx. An Onyx is about the size of like a uh, outdoor fridge. And it just like hummed. Did you, do you remember, Bond? Do you remember uh, in the 90s, there's a movie called War Games? Yes, I okay, love with War Matthew Games. And there was, yeah. this, there was something called a Whopper or something. It was a... <laughs> it, it was like a big black box that was apparently for all of their uh, supercomputers. Uh-huh. It was like having a supercomputer, but available to you 24-7. Unbelievable. So, I had access to this randomly. The school happened to have all of this hardware because it had just changed from being a polytechnic, this is a thing in England, to becoming a legit university. But in England, because of classism, you're not you're not a legitimate university ever unless mm. you go back to like the kings from like 1742. You know, like mm. there is such a clear delineation between universities in quotes and everybody else. So ours was not. <laughs> ours had just graduated. And we You're saying it wasn't a, like Cambridge or Oxford. God, no, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so, so maybe what they made up for by not having the reputation was a ton of hardware, hmm. which gave me access to something that if I hadn't had it, I don't know what type of trajectory I would have been on. That is fascinating. It's so you nuts. just end up happening to have the super technology. And yeah, this lab gave, that I had 24 access to, I was in it all the time, just basically learning how to do 3D software. And that's what gave me a career. That's how I got into IDEO. That's how I got into design, was learning something that was so technically challenging, partly because it's complicated, but primarily because nobody has access to that gear. So if you have access and then become proficient, forget about it. Wow. You can have a job. That's kind of like what the, essentially what they presented as a career pathway, which is really wacky if you think about it. I had no idea. And, and then from there, then you went to IDEO in the US, in Chicago, right from yeah. university? I spent a couple of years working in London doing the same type of rendering work. Uh, again, there was very few places in the world that would have wanted to, to have a skill set. Uh, I was lucky to find that in London. And when I applied it's, to the- It's commonplace now, but I mean, thinking about when it's like oh. 20 years ago, nobody was doing that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. The only people who would have done it would have been ILM or Pixar. Wow. You know, this is 94, 98, that type of time. So it- I mean, it was called Silicon Graphics. I mean, it was out of a very particular part of the world that made the hardware that then sold the boxes to other people in Silicon Valley. And there's one random coastal town in England, apparently. Wow. So <laughs> having access to that put me on a path. And uh, when I applied to the IDEO office, I showed up with a portfolio that wasn't shabby, but it was all made up of this stuff that very few people knew how to do. And now the other part was I was very lucky and that somebody in the office could read it, mm. as in that person who I still owe a, a lifelong debt to, he saw in me something that most people wouldn't recognize, which is, oh, this guy's pretty good at this, because mm. he was doing that work. He's my friend, Jerry. And uh, if Jerry hadn't kind of vouched for me, not knowing me at all, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, I would have ended up there. So, so there's some value in retelling the story, but I'd hate to come across like, this is a formula because I, I know as an Asian person, I've listened to a lot of stories about people's pathways and it gets presented like it's a recipe. Mm. And what's so sad is that the person telling the story is not even aware that nine out of those 10 ingredients is just called white privilege mm. and they don't realize that they, that is not afforded to everyone. Yeah, I 100% I, I agree. I, you know, my parents were immigrants from 
South Korea and, you know, we were really poor growing up. They worked in flea markets and gas stations. And I had gotten this scholarship to a really elite private school in New Jersey. The governor's sons had gone there and I was so embarrassed showing up because I just did not even have the right sort of clues, you know, to, to fit in. And I remember the guidance counselor saying, I wanted to apply to these elite Ivy League schools because if I didn't get in, my dad was going to kill me. <laughs> so I had to get into an Ivy League school. And and the guidance counselor was saying, hey, I don't think you're going to get into those schools. You should look for, you know, one of those non, you know, maybe a state school or something like that. And there's the state school in Jersey is great. So, but at that time being 16, 17 years old, I just... I said, no, this this can't happen. My school happened to have a really good fencing team and, and talk about this elite privileged sport. And I just excelled in that. And I got into college because I got recruited for fencing. Dude. And, and that is not a pathway that I think many people can have. I just happened to end up at this very elite school that had this random sport and did very well on that and got recruited and got into a lot of top tier schools because I was able to swing the sword around pretty well. Right. And, and wear white spandex. Doing what was it? Epe or saber? Is that some of the terms? Yeah, epe. I was an epeist. Oh my God, that's so hilarious. <laughs> that, so that's wild. Yes. It, it, it seems sad that it needs to require such a random act of... I wouldn't call it kindness, but just like a random set of circumstances. But sometimes it does. And I, I worry that that could be it. That doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, for, for you as a supercomputer, for me, it was an epe. <laughs> How are you replenishing your tank during this time, staying motivated and inspired to do, to do work? I was running out of steam, I'd say. It was becoming a fairly unsustainable path. And I've been finding that with COVID, not having access to the regular interactions I used to have was really draining. So I've been finding actually just having conversations with people like yourself and, and you know, a handful of other, I'd say, inspiring peers has given me a lot of energy. There's definitely like a tier of individuals that have been promoted and been we've been socialized to think they are global leaders. And then there's a, I'd say a bit of a gap. And then there's myself and other peers that are, do not get given the same opportunities to take those positions. And I'm realizing that now having met so many of those global leaders, I've been left just disappointed. Hmm. And I'm realizing that it was my fault for actually buying into that same story. It wasn't their fault, but I know that what I need isn't from, isn't going to come from them. So I'm getting inspiration from folks like Liz Ogbu or Christine Gaspar, the folks at Design Impact in Cincinnati. There's a lady called Sarah Fatala, and sort of there's a whole network of people that she knows through Grid Impact. There are individuals like Antoinette Carroll, individuals like Christy Tillman. Actually, there's a great writer. Her name is Jennifer Rittner in, in, in New York. There's an individual called Mark Dones. Like these are peers of mine. I hope they're peers of, of, that they think of me as a peer that I look to and feel great kinship and inspiration from. And when I just check in with them, maybe once a year or every, you know, every few months, I go, oh, thank God you still exist. I'm so glad you're still around and that you are struggling in, in some cases with the same struggles I have. And just being in conversation with them gives me energy for like a month or two. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, good. It's like, gives me like, a, it's like a solid granola bar of hope where I can just eat that and just go with it for a while. 
before I need another dose because it's so draining. This work is exhausting. And the current conditions we're in are just making it more apparent how much there's disconnect. You know, both from reality and then science, there's disconnect between uh, what people could and should be doing with public health and what people are actually doing because they're being told other things. Mm-hmm. There's there's such there's so much like national level gaslighting. It's hard to know what's up. So I, I get inspiration and feel from those folks. Well, thank you for giving me a granola bar of hope during this hour, George. <laughs> it's great having you on Design Lab. I'm always inspired by you and your work. And thank you. You're very kind, Vaughn. Thanks again for having me here. I hope we can do this in person one day. All right. Joining me now is the producer of Design Lab, Rob Pugisi. I love this part of the show because Rob and I get a chance to rapidly reflect upon what the guests had said and to think about that takeaway that we can apply to our own lives. George is one of the most creative people I know, and I love that Medium article that I read, I think it was about five years ago, about how to design a creative space. I remember that. I remember you sending that to me when we were first setting up the Health Design Lab and looking at these giant sheets of cardboard that they were using and (laughs) trying to find them and buy them and bring them into the lab. And it's crazy that that came from George. Yeah, they're the best things in the world. They're like four by eight chunks like huge sheets of cardboard yeah it's awesome rob do you think you could do that type of gut check in your life using data to help inform the decisions that you make with your friends and family yeah i mean sometimes it just takes a really inspired person like george who's an excellent designer to take this concept which is really quite simple and he acknowledged that which is really awesome but when you when you put some framework around it suddenly like i feel like i could do that and i'd really benefit from it I totally have, want to have one of those design workshops with him where he's just taking notes, putting on post-it notes, and helping me to see yeah. my decision-making. I, I should do that with you, man. We should do that together. Oh, uh, we, to- we totally got to do a gut check workshop because I think you're too busy. I think you do too much. I think you say yes to too many things, and I'd be really interested to see like what, what would happen if you applied that methodology to your decision-making. 100%. And you need to sleep more, man. I don't know if the gut check is going to work for my my distractedness. <laughs> I just like to do a lot of things. I can't help it. I just oh, I have a lot of interests. I can I can I can imagine this. It'd be the Rob journey map, and we could we could track what you do during the day. It'd be fascinating. It'd be it'd be a little scary. I I would not like to be that introspective. It'd be a little bit uncomfortable. But maybe that's what it takes. If you enjoyed this conversation with George, you can just Google his name. His last name is spelled A-Y-E. He has so many talks on designing for equity. And you can also find George on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give feedback to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. This helps us out so much. I'm your host, Bon Koo. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. And our theme music was created by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. We'll see you next week. 